This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Please remain seated for the scripture reading, which is taken from Colossians 3, 5, verse 5 to 14. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance, a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect, uni- perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome, holy God, heavenly Father, we come before you again and bow in your presence. And we're so grateful that you once again choose to draw near to us, responding to our imperfect, hesitating, half-believing, half-doubting, drawing near to you. And you are here, Lord, to minister to us in power and in grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak deeply to our hearts through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Dr. Paul Brand spent his life working as a medical missionary in India, caring for people with leprosy. And in the course of his lifetime, he spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours with human skin, severely damaged human skin, helping with the healing and reconstruction process. And he became aware of how amazing this organ is that we have. He wrote a book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and he devotes an entire chapter to our skin and our sense of touch. And I learned reading this book that underneath this outer layer of our skin, there are these fat globules that are the color and the consistency of tapioca pudding, of all things. And they are kind of held together in these fine strands, these fibers of cellulose. And in your hands, which is where you experience so much stress in your skin, these strands of cellulose hold the fat globules together like a really fine rope net holding together a bunch of balloons, but on a much, much smaller scale. And what happens with your hands when you grip something is that underneath your skin, this very finely constructed combination of fat and cellulose adjusts itself to whatever it is that you are holding or you are manipulating. And 
our bodies have this amazing ability to adapt and respond to the environment that we're in. And Dr. Brand took a skeleton that, for some reason, he had at hand, and he inserted a hammer into the hand, and he realized with just the bones, they, the hammer is contacting the body at four distinct pressure points. And without this very finely constructed layer of fat and cellulose, all the pressure and all the pain would be on those particular four points, and very quickly the body would wear down and develop ulcers and experience tremendous pain and tremendous breakdown. But this layer under the skin adapts and responds and reshapes itself to whatever it is we happen to be holding, whether it's a sledgehammer we're using to bash our way through a wall of bricks or the finest champagne glass. Our body adapts marvelously and miraculously. In fact, it was just that last year that a team at the University of Delaware determined that the human skin, the human fingertip, is so finely tuned, it can detect differences as small as a single atom in a substance. That is how delicately we have been made by God, not just to manipulate the world and do things to stuff around us, but to actually respond and perceive and listen and adapt. And of course, artists know that more than anybody, right? Because a great deal of art is your body responding to the material that you're working with. And I can imagine a woodworker working with a very fine and expensive and rare piece of wood, taking the time to analyze the grain and the structure and learning from the material what is going to be made here. He can't just simply come with his program and his plan and impose his will on the substance. There's this back-and-forth relationship. And Michelle told me at the uh, Art Collective yesterday, Tony was talking about being a sculptor and entering into a conversation with the material. Like, what, what is going to emerge here? And as an artist, uh, there is an element, of course, of invention, but there's a discovery happening as well. And I think all that is a very small illustration of how we're meant to be in our relationships with one another. There's a delicacy, a receptivity, an openness, and adaptability, all described by the single biblical word, gentleness. The eighth fruit of the Spirit we're meditating on today, gentleness. The opposite of gentleness is violence. When roughly and harshly and clumsily and even brutally, we try to impose our will on other things and other people, where there's no sensitivity, there's no receptivity. I don't want to listen. I don't want to learn. I just want to force my will on others. And I think in a way, that's how Paul, in the passage that Anne read for us from Colossians, how Paul is describing the old life before we met Jesus, a life in a way of violence towards others. Paul talks about sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And all those sins are different ways that we use other people, that we manipulate other people and we discard other people, simply consuming and absorbing them for our own ends. And then Paul talks about anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language. And those things I see as acts of aggression, 
where I damage and destroy even other people that I feel threatened by in some way who are standing in the way of what I crave. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that reinforcing this manipulation and this aggression is deception, lying and deception, which among other things is a way that we protect ourselves because we are afraid of being vulnerable to other people. On June 4th, 2004, in the small town of Granby, Colorado, Marvin Haymeyer went on a rampage in his armored Komatsu bulldozer, subsequently nicknamed the Killdozer. And Marvin was very angry and bitter because there had been a long-standing feud that he'd had over a piece of property with the zoning commission of the city council. And he took months and months, over a year, I think, assembling this bulldozer. He built this improvised armor out of this quick-ready concrete between tool metal slabs, sheet slabs. He fashioned this extremely heavy bulldozer, and he actually sealed himself inside. He had some kind of makeshift crane, and he lowered the shell on top of himself, and then he burst through his wall and went on this rampage through the town. He tore down the town hall. He destroyed the home of the former mayor. The editor of the newspaper that had written an editorial against him, he had a list with him of people that had done him wrong in one way or the other. And I feel like the killdozer is a sort of an image of the way that a lot of people live their lives. Sealed off behind this armor, making themselves impervious to others, angry and bitter and afraid of being hurt, and just going out and destroying the lives of others and causing trauma all around us. And what a shame it would be if this place, the Church of God, the family of Jesus, would become a kind of killdozer derby where we're all showing up, afraid of being hurt, inflicting damage on one another. And Paul says, no, no. You have this new life in Jesus. That is the old, pagan, demonic way of living. And now, in Christ, when you were baptized into Jesus, you died with him. You started this new life, and now we're called every day to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This constellation of five gentle virtues. Gentleness was not highly valued in Paul's time and culture. And I dare say gentleness is not highly valued today. You're not going to see the summer blockbuster, The Gentleness Ultimatum, directed by Michael Bay. Gentleness, honestly, is not the way to money and success and power and prestige in this world. You know that up to 15% of CEOs could be diagnosed as sociopaths? That's the way to get ahead in this world, by brutally shoving other people aside, humiliating, embarrassing other people, dominating them, imposing your will, on them. And here Jesus calls us to a completely different way. Jesus summons all of us sinful, damaged people into this new network of relationships, a family where we actually learn to have genuine relationships with each other that are not based on manipulation or aggression or deceit. And it all begins, I think, 
following Jesus' call to imitate him in gentleness with respect for others. And Christ wants to teach us this other person sitting across from you is not your possession. He or she does not exist for your sake. They're not yours to control or to consume or to dominate. That is a person created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, they have worth and dignity and value, not given by you, assigned by you, for you to judge and control or take away. But they have that from God. And God wants us to learn to respect the integrity of the other person. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this in his book, Creation and Fall. And he talks about how it's not good for man to be alone, and God creates us, and he calls us into relationship with others. But when God creates a second person, he creates someone who is not Adam. And when Adam meets Eve, which is a wonderful moment, he also experiences a boundary. There is a limit to his own ego, and he encounters another person. And Bonhoeffer wrote, we have this tendency in our sin to hate the limit. To want to go across that frontier and colonize the other person and to possess that other person. I had to repent myself after being married for a few years, realizing I was resenting Michelle for not being more like myself. I thought, man, she's got so many problems and issues. If only she was more even-keeled like me and more rational and more logical and more problem-solving, uh, everything would be wonderful. If only I had a mere image of myself to be married to. How awesome would that be? <laughs> and God taught me, I need to accept and embrace my wife the way that God created her to be. She incidentally had to learn that same lesson herself. Because in marriage, there's this sinful tendency, I think, maybe I'm the only one, a sinful tendency to want to pull the other person into your own orbit. I want to be this gigantic Jupiter-sized planet and to have her there as a small moon circling me, trapped within my gravity, where she shrinks down and actually loses her personhood because I'm this sort of vampire sucking everything out of her. It's a really tragic thing, actually, isn't it? To see a couple where there's the one couple who has all the life and all the control and all the domination, and the other one is this pale shadow beside him or beside her, and the life has just been sucked out of, out of them by their spouse, which is the very opposite of what God has created marriage to be, which should be about helping each other flourish and embracing the other person and celebrating the gift, this wonderful, mysterious gift of personhood that God has given. And I needed to repent and realize my wife has her own relationship with God, and there is a sacred core to Michelle that is off limits to me. That as an image bearer of God, there's a sense that I need to take off my shoes because I am in holy ground. And she is not something that exists for me to control, but there's the presence of God 
within her as there is within every single human being. There's this mysterious verse in Revelation chapter 2 that I've been quite struck by. Jesus says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Gentleness means allowing that to be so. Allowing the other person to be who they are before God and unclenching my tight, greedy little fists off of them and allowing them to flourish and unfold before their creator. Gentleness means saying, it is good that you exist as you are in this time and in this place. Gentleness means simply accepting and receiving the presence of the other person as a gift from God. Gentleness is the opposite of violence and trying to force our will on other people. And if, if that's what violence is, I am sad to say that the church can often be a violent place. And pastoring and ministry can often be a violent thing as perhaps for very noble motives, the noblest of all motives, the will of God, we try to impose what we imagine to be God's will on other people. And we have these alpha leaders who are aggressive and domineering, and they've got a program and they have a schedule that they are trying to force people into. But it doesn't honor the individuality that every person has before God, and it doesn't recognize where they are on their own journey with the Lord. We try to adapt people to programs instead of adapting programs to people who are far more important. You know, in Greek mythology, the Greeks had such wonderfully fertile imaginations. They had the story of a bandit named Procrustes, and he would invite people into his, into his castle off the side of the road, weary travelers, and he had for them an iron bed to sleep in. But he would use his tools to adapt the person to the bed, cutting off parts of their body or violently stretching them to make the person fit the bed. And in English, we have this phrase about a procrustean bed where you try to force people and jam people into a shape that they're not meant to have. And so the church sometimes can be a violent place as people try to force us into a shape that we're maybe not meant to have. And leaders can get angry <laughs> when people are so frustrating and so slow and so resistant to our plans and our schedules and our programs. About 10 years ago, I was receiving counseling at a church in Canada, and I had some pretty serious issues, and I was slow to change. And I had a meeting with this pastor where he, he blew up at me and he started yelling at me. I come to him because I was feeling very brokenhearted about some things and God was bringing me through a process of repentance and he denounced that all as hypocrisy and he really, really tore a strip off of me. It was quite a shocking experience. And to my surprise, I, I began to cry in this meeting. And I'm not a natural, easy crier at all, but I was so shocked and 
honestly violated by this experience. I, I had this kind of breakdown in front of my pastor. And I was very traumatized by that experience. And I thought to myself, man, this is not the way of Jesus. And how horrifying that anyone in the church should experience a leader or a pastor or anyone within this body shouting at them and yelling at them because they're not changing quickly enough. And I think the reason, one reason we get angry and we get frustrated with other people is because of our impatience. We are in an awful hurry. And we try to force things because we're impatient and we're running out of time and people aren't changing fast enough. And we can do severe damage to people because we're not willing to slow down and take a breath and remember that God has all the time in the world. God has all the time in the world. There's a story about one of the desert fathers, one of these monks living in the wilderness in Egypt in the 5th, 6th, 7th century. He was a very holy man, a real man of God, and he was summoned to perform an exorcism by someone who was being demonized. And so this monk shows up and he's like, well, before I'm going to start the exorcism, let's have a little scripture reading. So he begins with Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning. But he doesn't read in the beginning. He spells it out very slowly. I-N-T-H-E. And finally, the demon can bear it no longer. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm spelling my way through the entire Bible. And the demon says, I don't have time for this. And he leaves. The devil is always in a hurry because he knows that his time is short. Satan is always impatient. That's why he's always willing to do violence to people and to force things. And God says, a day to me is like a thousand years, and a thousand years to me is like a single day. God has all the time in the world. And then we recognize this other person is not mine to fix. In December last year in a city in Western Russia at the Yeltsin Center Gallery, a 60-year-old security guard on his very first day of the job defaced a painting valued at 970,000 US dollars. Anna Leporskaya's three figures from 1932 from the Soviet era. It's an abstract painting of three faceless figures, and the security guard took it upon himself to take his ballpoint pen and draw two sets of eyes <laughs> on these paintings. And I laughed when I read this, and I thought, this is the dumbest person I've ever heard of. On his very first day on the job, hired to protect, to guard these paintings, he defaces them and causes almost a million dollars in damage. And then, of course, as so irritatingly happens when I laugh at dumb people, the Spirit reveals to me, you are laughing at yourself, Bart. Because you are the one taking out your own ballpoint pen and correcting and improving what God is trying to do. And it's even worse in your case because the artist is actually present and at work. 
And I have the arrogance to reach over and take his brush, his knife out of his hands, and start hacking away myself. To be a gentle person means releasing other people to God and trusting in the slow, sure work of God's grace. How foolish of us and how arrogant to assume that we know what is best for other people. And the gentle person is the man or the woman who follows God's command to be slow to speak and quick to listen. Like your grandmother reminded you, you have two ears and one mouth. That should suggest the ratio for speech versus listening. I got my hair cut yesterday, in case you didn't notice. And I came back to the art collective that we were having at our place, just as people were leaving, and I had a chance to sit down and talk with Pastor Vlad, a good friend of mine. And I was thinking that my brain had been churning in the taxi about gentleness, and I was very eager to download on him all of my brilliant insights on gentleness. And he was talking and responding and sharing, and I realized I'd been zoning him out for the last few minutes because I'm busy queuing up the things that I want to share as I violently ram my thoughts on gentleness down his throat. We have this incredibly arrogant belief that my thoughts and my ideas and my insights are the only ones that matter. And we want to force people to sit down and receive what we have to say. But what a rare gift it is to find a friend who is actually willing to listen to you. C.S. Lewis said, the truly humble man or woman is not the person who's always like, oh, woe is me, I'm so sinful, and I'm so terrible, and I'm such garbage. He said, the truly humble person, you wouldn't even realize they were humble. They just enjoyed being in your presence, and they laughed at your jokes, and they were just quietly listening and receiving from you. And there are so few of those people in the world, aren't there? But what a gift it is to encounter such a person and to be honored with the gift of genuine listening. And maybe there wouldn't be quite so many mental and emotional and relational problems in the world if people were willing to listen. My Uncle Frank was a missionary in Central America and then in Hungary for many years. And he went on a, they went on a year-long sabbatical uh, to Smithers, British Columbia. And they got to stay in the manse. The pastor and his wife were on a vacation that week. Yeah, use, use the manse. You can use my study to get some work done. And so he was working on a book or an article or something, and the telephone rang. And so he picked up the phone and said hello, and it was one of the parishioners from the church. He began to talk. He didn't realize that it wasn't the pastor he was talking to. It was my Uncle Frank. And my uncle tried to interrupt, but this person was just had some huge problem they were dealing with, and they were just letting it out, and my uncle, being a good Canadian, just let them, okay, I'll just sit back for the next 45 minutes and listen to this person talking. And this person had a lengthy monologue about what they were struggling with. And then at the end of the conversation, this person said, Pastor, this has been extremely helpful. Thank you so much for your counsel, and hung up the phone. <laughs> because we just want someone to listen to us, don't we? 
That would heal so much. But you know, real listening means being a safe place for the vulnerability of others. Michael Jensen writes, to treat someone gently is to see their vulnerability and their fragility and yet not to crush or break them. They may be physically, morally, emotionally, or spiritually vulnerable to us at that moment. And we give them what they may not deserve, but what, as a human being, they certainly need. Gentleness means honoring the vulnerability of other people. And then we learn, I myself am also broken. We're all broken people, damaged simply by being in a fallen world. I've had to learn I am a wounded person. I've been wounded by experiences. I've been wounded by relationships. Worst of all, I've wounded myself. And knowing those wounds are my own fault doesn't make them any less. It makes them, in fact, worse. And you also are a wounded person. Welcome to the hospital. We're all wounded, broken people. And we all require gentle handling. Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God knows you are fragile. You know, I think we often feel ashamed and angry at ourselves that we are weak, that we are needy, frustrated that we can't get our act together. And God wants you to know this afternoon that your fragility does not anger him. Your weakness does not cause God frustration. He knows your frame. He remembers you are dust. He was there when you were being formed in your mother's womb. And Jesus comes as an expression of God's gentle care for his broken creation. And as the book of Isaiah prophesied, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. We are here flickering these feeble little flames. And Jesus comes and cups his hand around and guards and protects us. And it's so striking that in his ministry, his three years of public ministry, Jesus seemed to have all the time in the world. His disciples were in a hurry. They were angry at all these 
worthless, fragile, broken, irritating people who kept on coming to Jesus and interrupting what they imagined was the real work of ministry. Jesus had all the time in the world. He had compassion for those who were broken. And one thing that's very striking in the gospel accounts, once you notice it, is how often Matthew and Mark and Luke and John make it a point to mention that Jesus looked. He didn't just charge into the healing. Jesus looked. He saw and he had compassion. Jesus didn't come with a schedule, a program. He didn't come to violently perform ministry on people and get angry when they refused to conform with his plans. He was gentle. He was sensitive. He looked. He listened. And then he reached out and touched. And that was what healed people. And then we discover that God has sent us a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness because he himself knows what it is to suffer. He became dust. He entered into our frailty. He knows what it is to be broken. He knows what it is to be wounded. And amazingly, you and I are called by God not just to be healed by Jesus, but to become like him. We're all somehow, in our smallness and our weakness and our littleness, we're being renewed by the Spirit of God in the image of Jesus, the image of our Creator. And somehow, even while we are receiving healing and ministry, while we come here every week, empty and thirsty and hungry for our own word from God, for our own touch of His grace, God gives us the awesome privilege of ministering grace to other people. It's a very strange hospital where we're all patients and we're all these student interns following Jesus around. And he takes our hand and he places them on the bodies of other people who are also suffering, who are also broken. And he teaches us to speak words that heal. To live lives where his own grace is coming through us. Somehow, we find that other people are encountering God through our own delicate touch guided by the Holy Spirit. So shall we unfold ourselves before God and in our own emptiness and vulnerability ask him for his grace? Loving Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak the words, peace be still to our own stormy and troubled hearts. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the violence we do to one another, for our own anger, our own short tempers, our own refusal to listen, to accept one another, to grace one another. Lord, we do it out of our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. 
as we damage and traumatize one another. We ask, Lord, for your forgiveness, and we ask for your healing. None of us here are strong. None of us are at a place where we can dispense life to other people. We are not the Christ. You alone are, O Lord. So help us to open ourselves up to you in confession and contrition and brokenheartedness to receive what you want to give us. And then, Lord, help us to graciously give and receive from one another. Because in a mysterious way, you've called us together as your family, and we're meant to experience wholeness in our encounter with one another through our fellow image bearers. Lord, I pray that you would grace this church, not to be uh, an angry, domineering, demanding kind of place, Help us to be a place of grace, O Lord. Help us to be friends with time, because it is your time. We thank you for your grace, O Lord. We worship you through your Son, our Redeemer. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF hyphen georgia dot org. Thanks for listening.